the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Last Saturday, after the girls went to bed, I slipped back downstairs to catch the second half of the TCU football game. They were playing the University of Houston, but I digress. And no sooner did I plop down in the recliner than the game came to a full stop. One of the linebackers from the University of Houston broke through the line with a late hit on the TCU quarterback and received a personal foul. But the conjoining penalty was one that took minutes to unpack. The adjoining foul was one of targeting, which meant he was immediately ejected from the game. Due to copyright laws, the best I could get of that photo without uh, trying to find a way to grab it was this, of that play. So don't tell the, uh, those who are looking for such things on ABC and whatnot. But um, essentially what happened was they spent the, the following minutes, it seemed like an eternity, as the commentators weighed in on the merits of targeting and its safety for young athletes and all of those sorts of things, replay after replay after replay of that moment. And they're looking for, as I understand it, and our coaches in our bunch can hopefully correct me later if I'm wrong, um, that when you tackle, you're not leading with your head. And more specifically, the crown of your head, which can do lots of damage. Most of us have pretty hard heads, whether we want to admit it or not. And so they went through this process looking to see if that was the case. And ultimately, they decided that it wasn't intentional targeting, and they let the player remain in the game, but nonetheless, TCU still won. But the point is this, <laughs> not that. As I was reflecting on this parable from Matthew 20 this week, uh, this came back to mind. And for these reasons, unlike in college football, um, the gospel, more specifically Jesus, is intending to target with the crown every aspect of our lives. In fact, if there's an aspect of our lives that doesn't make contact with the gospel. I'd contend it's either because we've withdrawn or heaven forbid, using that watchman image, right, that someone, heaven forbid, in a role of teaching has not presented to you the fullness of the gospel or you've not digested it. But we're talking about a king and a kingdom and there's no aspect of our lives that is safe, that is ours, if we are to inherit and walk in the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. And so this morning, I'd like for us, with this kind of image in mind, um, to replay, if you will, um, Matthew 20, and to think about our lives and the aspects of our lives therein in this parable that Jesus is targeting for our sensibilities both then and now. So turn there with me back in chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. But before we dive right in with this parable, let me give us a bit of context. If you have your Bibles and you flip back a page to chapter 19, after the teaching in the opening portion of chapter 19 on divorce, um, the rest of 19 really deals with um, status, prestige, and rank, uh, both in the world's ways and in the kingdom of God. And we see this repetition of the first and last that unpacks as we go forward that, that really comes into chapter 20 with us. But we note early on um, that 
There's this one interaction in the midway point of Matthew's gospel in chapter 19 where the children are coming to Jesus. Uh, Remember, the disciples rebuke them. Um, They remind them that Jesus is too busy for them. He's got more important things to do. When Jesus sees this, he invites the children forward and then uses that as an object lesson to tell the disciples and all gathered that the kingdom of heaven is to be approached with such faith as these. Immediately following on that, this last and first image, right, the least image, then follows this interaction with the rich young ruler in 19, chapter 19. Remember, um, by all accounts, he's a shining example of what is intended to be one who lives according to the fullness of the faith, as they understand it revealed um, at that point through the Old Covenant, right? Um, But Jesus, as only God can do, incarnate in Jesus Christ, sees his heart and says, one thing you lack. There's one thing that stands between you and the faith that you want to wholly embrace, and for him, it's his wealth. But Jesus points out, of course, that if there's anything that stands between us and God, then that must be dealt with, that must be surrendered, right? So the reason I share all this is all of this is context because right after this interaction with the rich young ruler, right, the disciples, to jog your memory, then say, well, Jesus, we are the last, right? We've laid down everything. We've followed you. So we'll receive our reward, won't we? And Jesus said, indeed, you will. Um, You'll sit on uh, the seats of judgment judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So they're flying high at that point, right? They've, they've got a place. They've got uh, some prominence. They've got um, a purpose. And then Jesus tells this parable, which really kind of knocks them back down a peg. And it should for anyone who come into it thinking that um, if we enter into the kingdom of heaven that we're entitled to certain things. So in verse 1, we see Jesus tees up this parable likening the kingdom of heaven to a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. There's work to be done. There's a whole image and sermon unto itself in that, um, that we're invited into. And then in verse 2, there's this agreement with the laborers for a denarius a day as he sends them out into the vineyard. It's fair. For those in that day, they would know that a denarius was absolutely a fair wage, for anyone going to work for a day's work. In a sense, what Jesus is pointing out to um, in this parable is that what they're invited into isn't something they're subjected to or some sort of coercion, but they're, they're given um, some sort of fair uh, role um, and a fair reward, which then gets kind of blown up at the end, as we see. But what I'd suggest is this. The reason we have to look at 19 to bridge into this is what Jesus is pointing out, that the disciples themselves um, argue that they understand, and, and rightly so at this point, is this. Jesus is really targeting our sense of control, it's something we all wrestle with to an extent, something we all will wrestle with even when we come to faith in Christ Jesus. It's, it's an all-in. There's not a 80-20, 90-10, 98-2%. We don't withhold anything. And lest we think that we're in control, this parable, just by the virtue of the way that Jesus masterfully teased it up, doesn't leave us any wiggle room. It's the landowner's vineyard. It's his kingdom. And those that are invited in are actually graciously given something to do, a place and a purpose, 
arguably, um, that is far better than where they've been. But nonetheless, their only sense of control really is to say, I'm in or I'm out. There's not a negotiation to be had, um, even though we can say that for the purposes of the parable in verse 2, there's an agreement about the denarius. But ultimately, if there was any negotiation, the landowner could say, no, this is what I'm offering you, and you can take it or not. What Jesus wants us to see and that we really have to reflect on is that coming into the kingdom of heaven, certainly through faith in the waters of baptism, is a starting point that really becomes a journey the rest of our lives, as we know, where we have to learn to give up control and let the king lead. And that's often something that we wrestle with. But it's a framework we have to begin with because all the rest doesn't make sense if we have any other sort of uh, preconceived notion before we go from there. Now, for the disciples, this is good news, right? In the first two verses, they're like, well, that's us. We gave up everything. We followed you, Jesus. We're, we're on this journey with you. There's nothing left. And thus, we started from this place of great humility, and now we ascend. And so they're listening, kind of thinking, well, we haven't come in hubris. We've come in humility, and, and now we're going to get our reward. And as they listen, I would imagine their faces are a little more awestruck as the parable unfolds, because the next thing that Jesus does in the subsequent section is he knocks down this whole sense of status in the heart of this parable, if we turn there uh, back in verse 3. Here we see that there's this second, third, fourth pass for workers out in the marketplace in this parable. Um, nowhere is the discussion of pay mentioned. In fact, the only time we see it again, which seems to be the case that's assumed for all the subsequent passes, comes in verse 4 as uh, the landowner says, go into the vineyard and I will give whatever is right to you. Um, essentially, there's, there's a fairness that will be incurred, but then that will even get challenged in a moment. But where I'd like for us to drill down just briefly is verse 6 and 7. Even at the 11th hour, as dusk is setting in, the landowner goes back out and makes one last pass and finds those, as our text says, at least in this translation, that are idle. Now, I think we have to bring before the text sometimes our own uh, context, which may make it hard for us to really hear What's going on there? When we in the West, and more specifically we in America, hear that there's a question asked to a group of people, why are you idle? We initially assume a lot of things about those people. We think, oh, well, you know, they're probably just lazy. We know if the early bird gets the worm, if they were there on first watch, they would have been the cream of the crop like everybody else. So this is probably on them, not on anyone else's problem. But what Jesus wants us to see, and in fact, perhaps a better translation, which is a little more clunky, but, but gets to the heart of it, is Jesus is asking them there, not why are you not doing anything, but why aren't you working? Why haven't you found work? Why aren't you out there? And their response and reply in verse 7 gives this pass that everyone hearing would understand. Well, no one's hired us. And then even in the 11th hour, there are enrolled in this work and put to work. What Jesus essentially um, is confronting there, both for the disciples then and, and perhaps in some cases for us now, is the sense of who is called. So for the disciples, they would know there are those people that no one wants to have anything to do with. In their context, it's the Samaritans, right? 
It could be um, anybody um, that they could call to mind. And what Jesus is basically saying is that he's even calling those people, whoever those people are in their mind, that they're invited to work and be part of the kingdom of heaven. And lest they think otherwise, the image that Jesus wants them to see is that the landowner, God himself, is actually the one out in the marketplace beautifully all the time looking for those that haven't yet found the kingdom of heaven and inviting them to be part of it every single pass. And so the disciples, remember, have a little bit of confrontation probably with this portion of this teaching because where their thinking is, well, we are the last who now are first. We've given up everything in humility. We've given up control, not unlike the rich young ruler, and therefore we're on the rise. In fact, Jesus just said we're going to be in this place of judgment to the 12 tribes of Israel. That's a pretty good deal. And Jesus saying, not so fast. Just because you've been with me longest doesn't mean you're the most privileged. In fact, my heart is to be out there finding everyone who hasn't yet heard. And that lines up with all the other parables that should ping our radar, right? The prodigal son, um, the, the lost sheep, and the lost coin. So many places where Jesus demonstrates the heart, for lack of a better way of personifying that, of God the Father, is to be out there seeking those who have yet to hear, who have yet to receive. Unless they think otherwise, don't be so quick to think that all that Jesus wants, the landowner in this image wants, is to be with the privileged few. But rather, he leaves the privileged few time and time again to go and seek out others. And so, what does this have to say of us? And in many ways, um, Dr. King was not wrong, and, and it has changed some, but um, not as much as it probably should uh, when he spoke these words, that Sunday mornings are often the most segregated hour of the week. Um, we look to be around people that think like us, that dress like us, that believe like us, that have the same affinities as us, the same interests as us. And that's true in Jesus' day. It's true in our day. It's part of the human condition. And what Jesus does is knock that down a peg and say, no, that's not how the kingdom of heaven is. We're to be the ones that are inviting others in so that they might encounter what we've come to find. And it should look, as Revelation points, that every tribe, tongue, and nation are there found. Now, everyone who answers that call has to surrender the same control, surrender to the gospel in the same way we have. But there's no one for whom it is off limits. And lastly, if that didn't offend them enough, the, the pied de resistance comes in the final few verses, right? As their sense of fairness is challenged back in verse 8. There, as evening comes, everyone comes in seeking their wages. And as they do, um, in this repetitious way, Jesus pays the last first. And so we see that those who are first, who agreed to a day's wage, they knew what they were going to get, are watching this play out. And they think, oh, this is wonderful. The, the landowner is being so generous, um, so generous that they're getting what we agreed to. So probably their minds are wandering as to what figure they're going to get, um, how that might go in their lives, all these things. And then when their turn comes, here's the punchline. They get the very same thing that everyone else does. And what happens? What do they do? They grumble. They grumble with the landowner. And the landowner graciously says, I've done you no wrong. I've given you what you agreed to. 
take what belongs to you and go. If I choose to pay them what I want to pay them, what matter of that is yours? Now, here's where analogies break off, right? I mean, this is a terrible business model. You'd go out of business if you did this in any way, shape, or form, and that's not the point. But what Jesus wants to do, what he's confronting, is not only their sense of control, the broader group, but the last two points really, I would um, suspect, were aimed more at the disciples themselves. Who's called? And then lastly, what are your conclusions for those who are called? There's not an ascendancy of those who come to the faith, and the longer you're with, the more you get. This is not a contract with payments received. This is a covenant with promises that are guaranteed. And thanks be to God, thanks be to God, he doesn't keep a credits and debits list in our lives because there's no way, no way we could ever balance that out. And so when we get into those places where we kind of think, well, you know, I mean, I've been at it for a while or whatever the case may be, Jesus challenges that pull yourself up from your bootstraps and you'll get more and says, nope, the more is that you're with me and that's enough, that you're in part of this kingdom of heaven and that's where it ends. And so Jesus is challenging those then and now. And I'd argue that the way that we can see where our heart is in relation to the kingdom of God is exactly what he's highlighted about those who came at the end, right? What did they do? They weren't grateful. Thank you for giving me work. Thank you for bringing me into your kingdom. But rather they grumble. And there they are challenged in their grumbling. So let me ask you this. What what targets your sensibilities? What kind of irks you this morning um, about those aspects of this gospel reading? If it's your sense of of control, could I encourage you just in small ways? I'm not going to ask you to give up all control, but could you give up a little control in your week? Could you start somewhere? Could you make an hour a week for Bible study that you block out? Could you uh, make five minutes a day for prayer? Could you find a way where you're surrendering control to to the landowner, to Jesus, in some way that that helps you remember who's really got it all? I guarantee you the beauty of it is, right, um, whether we receive the gospel and the grace in our call, who who is in and who is out, whether you receive that um, as I did at five years old or whether you get it on a deathbed, which I've had many of those in ministry as well, the beauty of, of it is it doesn't matter. I would say the fullness of life for those who receive it earlier, they get the richness of having a place and a purpose that maybe some have missed until late in life. But thanks be to God, um, the grace of God is no less uh, full and the same regardless of whether we come to him. So if it's our sense of call and and who's in and who's out, um, might I say that one of the best ways we can grow in humility is by service. And find those ways to serve. In fact, I'd contend as St. Barnabas, we have more ways to serve right now than we probably arguably have ever had. You can uh, do canned food drive, you've heard this morning. You can pray. You can write letters. Um, You can uh, bake cookies for the Kairos weekend next month. Um, You can plug in with Apartment Life and John and Christy uh, once a month for only an hour a month to go and and be in the community quite literally with those and love on them for the sake of the gospel. There's so many ways when we put ourselves in a position where we're not in control to see those around us that Jesus is always calling. And if it's our sense of conclusions, our fairness, and all of those sorts of things, um, might I ask you to consider if we get into those places of grumbling, um, to turn that around in gratitude and just start to think 
and call to mind all the things that we can be grateful for that God has given us, whether it's just literally the breath in our lungs or all the many blessings. Once you get going, sometimes it's hard to stop. And if you ever need a chance and a space to do that, text me. Uh, the church is available for that, and you can come and fix your eyes on that cross as helps me in the course of the week to remember that grace that we've been given as Jesus is calling us all into his kingdom. So this morning, as the gospel always does, um, it makes contact. It targets every aspect of our lives because it is a kingdom. It truly is. And a kingdom has a king, and he rules, and he does. And he asks us, he invites us into his kingdom so graciously. And so as we answer that call, we're called to move into new depths with him and recognize the reward that we have is merely to be part of his kingdom and ultimately one day to see the king face to face. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.